Hi, everyone. Today, I am really thrilled to have this guest with us. Her name is Lulu Lundine. I actually was introduced to a friend, but I don't know a ton. And so, therefore, I want to hand it over to Lulu so she can tell us, in her words, who are you? And then I will dive in a little bit deeper on why we're trying to connect today. So, Lulu. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to share a little bit about myself and who I am. I'll kind of start with those typical labels that everybody puts on. So I am a female identifying woman in recovery. I am a mom. I am a wife and I am a friend. And, you know, I think those, those labels are really important to me because they define how I show up in this world mm-hmm. and who I am and who I want to be. And those kind of open the door for people to ask more questions. You know, that you start with the label and then it kind of transforms from there and you can expand on those things. So that's, yeah, that's kind of who I am in a nutshell. That's awesome because a lot of times I'll ask people, who are you? And they're stumped. Like that's some crazy question. So I'm glad that you are able to right off the cuff, give an explanation. It does show your age and my age difference. I'm 54. Mm -hmm. I have four boys, three of them are adults. And this label thing and identification Mm -hmm. thing is relatively new, but it is helpful. At first, Mm -hmm. honestly, I was a little frustrated with the whole thing. Like, why is that important? But Mm -hmm. now I understand more. And so let's get into the meat of your story. I was introduced told about your story quite a while ago, actually, from Jen, who's one of my besties. And you and Jen have known each other for quite a while. So how did the two of you meet? Yeah, so we actually, we go back knowing who each other are for a very long time since I was was little. But she, uh, we met in the rooms of recovery rooms and we met at a meeting and she was one of those people that when I first came into recovery about eight years ago, I saw her and I was like, she is so cool. I want to be that. Um, and so it was, it, it, that's kind of how our, our friendship sparked. And then we came to realize that we knew each other through my mom and her sponsor in the program who were friends. Um, my mom, my mom's name is Mary. Mary. Okay. So Mary and Jen actually kind of knew each other. Yep. Yep. Through kind of through the grapevine of the recovery community, they knew each other. Um, so that's kind of how we we started as, as that, and then it's kind of flourished into this transformation kind of friendship. So did you say eight years that you've been sober? Yep. In okay. January, it'll be eight years. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. yeah I'm that's, not a big drinker, but that is a feat. It really is. So many social things are wrapped around that identity and the need. And um, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that I still question myself. Like, what if I gave it up 100%? What would that feel like? So I know that when people end up in the rooms of recovery, it's not just a, hey, I should give it up and see how my life feels better. There's a lot going on. So would you mm-hmm. backtrack a little bit and tell us how you finally got to the rooms of recovery? I know there's different ways. Some people are court mandated and some people are like, mm-hmm. my life is a black hole and I have no other choice. So what happened for you? Yeah, I was more of the, my life is a black hole and I have no other choice person. Okay. I'm blessed that I never had any sort of legal ramifications, although I probably should have. And for me, my addiction was pretty much solely based on my lack of love for myself and my, you know, mental health. 
mental health and addiction go hand in hand together. And so, you know, I grew up in a pretty rocky home. My mom, who had 24 years of sobriety when I was younger, relapsed when I was about eight or nine. And my life kind of went downward from there. She never really recovered from it. There was abuse mentally, emotionally, physically, and there was a lot of neglect. So I was pretty much left to raise myself with no one to really, no mother to really teach me how to deal with life on life's terms. Oh my God. So my youngest is eight and I will not start bawling now, but to me, to look at him because I have done everything in my power to make sure that he knows what's possible in the world. I don't want to spoil him rotten, but I want him to always have a very optimistic view of life. And Jameson will say to me, you know, I don't want to go to school today. And I'll repeat all the time, all of life is school. You're never going to be done learning. And so I want him to have a big picture view, high level view, as well as an eight-year-old's view. And that Mm -hmm. eight-year-old view teaches me a ton, but at eight years old, you were parenting yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that goes into a lot of the way I parent now as a mother with my son. He's 22 months on Saturday, so almost two years old. And, (laughs) you know, my, I mean, he's the light of my life and I didn't know love till I had him, but it really shapes how I show up with him and how I interact with him because I don't want him to experience the same things I experience, you know, and, and, but with that as well, a lot of fear goes into my motherhood because I'm scared that I will have the same story as my mom. And I'm scared that I've never been taught how to mother. So it's just kind of like thinking on my feet, going with what I think I know and what I think is best. And with that comes a lot of fear and anxiety. Do you feel, Lulu, though it's instinctual or do you feel like you're not quite sure what you're supposed to do? I think it's just instinctual. You know, I've always been a, a caretaker kind of as even from a young age, I was always like, the mother figure in my group of friends and, you know, always had more of a older spirit yes. than most of my friends. And so I think that kind of instinctual motherly instinct has always been with me. And I think it's more my mind that gets in my own way. Well, so the good news is we have a tiny little mind and a giant soul. Follow your soul. It knows what it's yeah. doing. Yeah. And I have similar background and we won't go into it today, but I did not have what I thought was just honest, true love, mm-hmm. you know, and having my children save my life, honestly. And again, they taught me everything. I, I kind of was raised with them, so to speak. I grew up with them, especially my older ones. But now looking back, I can say 100% that my soul knew what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, my oldest is 33 and my little guy is eight and I have two lives. And because I have the older boys, which was just a clusterfuck of experiences. Mm-hmm. And then this one, which seems to be much more planned out and methodical. I have the past view and the current view. And so it's such a gift because your son, your two-year-old, that is a wise man. He chose you before he got here. Mm -hmm. And all I can say is an old mom is just know that your soul knows what to do. We are wired that way. We really are. Even if you had nothing shown to you that was right, 
I can mm-hmm. see it written all over you. Like you've got this infectious smile and a very warm presence. And you and I haven't sat in a room together, but I'm, I know I would still feel that. And I, mm-hmm. I'm telling you as a mom, don't ever doubt that your soul knows what to do. Yeah. And I've, over these past two years, have worked really hard on kind of, for lack of a better word, conquering that self-doubt. Yeah. And it's, you know, from, from the moment he was born to now is a transformation in how I view myself as a mother and how I mother. Because, you know, as my first child, I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to go with the flow and hope it works out. And so it's like, I've learned things along the way that really reinstill my values and also teach me how I want to show up. And then I make mistakes and I go, okay, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. Your son will tell you when you're doing something wrong. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) But would you share with people without getting too graphic, because the story is really compelling. And what I want people to know is no matter what they've come through and gone through, you have choices in life. You can be sucked up by the black hole or you can choose to thrive. You can Mm -hmm. get beyond just surviving. You can actually be happy. Doesn't matter what you've been through. I know that sounds like pie in the sky, but I speak from experience. On the outside, no one would know what we've been through. But, you know, when you start to peel back the layers, I would say most people's stories are quite hard and dark, you know, Mm -hmm. and the best people I've ever met have had the hardest and darkest stories. And that's Mm -hmm. on purpose because of the amount of compassion that you learn, your ability to actually see through the outside and see the inside. So would you share with people what your childhood was like and what happened with your mother? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I uh, spot on with this idea that, you know, we can either choose to thrive or let us take it, let it take us down. And I chose the latter. It took me a few times to learn that, to make that choice. But to start my, my father, who I was a, a daddy's girl, to say the least, I have a lot of fond memories of my dad, but he got diagnosed with lung cancer when I was about six probably around the age of six and was only given a few months to live. It was pretty advanced stage. He was a regular, you know, heavy duty smoker and he decided to do hospice from home. So the next two ish years, year and a half, two years was kind of me watching him die, which at six years old, when you're just learning about life, it's, it was tough. And he passed away in the middle of the night, one night when I was eight. And I just remember bawling for, you know, 20 minutes. And then it was, mom, I want to go to school. Shut down. Because those intense emotions, I didn't want to feel. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, my mom shortly after my dad passed away, relapsed um, from her strong recovery um, and never could string together more than 30 days of sobriety. And generally it was more like three to 10 days of sobriety. So you know, the next several years were spent, you know, driving her to treatment, visiting her in treatment. Um, She was in and out of treatment centers. And when I was, meanwhile, through all of this, I said, I'm not going to drink. Yeah. I am not because I'm not going to be my mom. And when I was about 17, she was committed to the state. And what that means is basically she's not able to make decisions for herself anymore between her addiction and her mental health. So she was passed around from different, you know, hospital to treatment center to hospital to treatment center for about a year and a half. And in that time, 
I started to drink because I just, again, couldn't deal with those intense feelings of um, anger. It was a lot of anger at that point. Anger at my mom. Learn how to disassociate, but that only works for so long. Yes. Yeah. There is Um, an expiration period to that method of coping. mm -hmm. Yeah. And it catches up to you pretty darn quickly. Um, It works for a short bit, but it catches up to you. And, you know, so I, I started drinking, started dabbling in drugs. And my mom was shortly before she passed away, she was in a facility and went on a pass and never came back from it. She went for a walk, never came back from that walk. I don't know specific details of what all in happened in those kind of 24 hours, but she ended up deciding to take her own life. And you were 17? Um, I was at 19 at that time. So it was about a year and a half of her commitment. And then she decided to take her own life because she just didn't want to deal with life anymore. She, she was done. And, you know, at the time it was, it was hard. Again, I did that 20 minutes of crying and then back to got to plan her funeral, got to do this, got to take care of that. And, and then there was that anger piece of, I didn't get a goodbye. I didn't get the closure. And with that kind of lingering lack of goodbye, there was a lot of pain in that. Well, your childhood ended at eight. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I, there's nothing that happened between eight and 19 that looks anything like a childhood. Like when I look at Jameson and the stuff he teaches me now is childlike joy. Mm-hmm. And I try to find ways to experience that because it is a magical place to be, but that ended for you at eight mm-hmm. years old. So whatever happened between eight and 19 was kind of like, almost like a coma. Mm-hmm. where you had to be out of body to function. Yeah. And I, I mean, I remember bits and pieces of that time, but it's all pretty foggy. And the things I do remember are very deep and painful things. I don't want to remember kind of things. So you start medicating and mm-hmm. trying to numb some of the feelings that are roaring up in you. Yep. How long before you ended up in the rooms of AA? And on your path um, yeah, I had a pretty short drinking career in the grand scheme of things. Um, so I, <laughs> I came into the rooms at about 22, 23 years old. So I only drank for about four or five years, but I always say I drank to be an 80 year old man because I was, I was drinking about, you know, a very large consumption of alcohol daily. And towards the end, it was pretty much every minute on the hour. I was drinking. Do you remember? I bet you, I don't know. I'm completely unfamiliar with this, but in the end, right before you decided that you had to seek something else, were you looking to not be here anymore? Do you think? I had some moments of that. Yeah. Probably about a year before I got um, sober, I had a suicide attempt where I took a bunch of pills. And I think in that sense, my, you know, my mental health piece and not wanting to be here was more about a cry for help than it really was not wanting to be here. I just had no idea how to get out of this black hole I was in. And I was too proud to ask for help at the time. And in so much pain that I didn't know how to say, I need help. 
spiritually, you are still eight. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I don't want to paint a dark picture of life. Now I want to kind of show people because so many people, whether they do it privately or they share with somebody, they suffer and they suffer Mm -hmm. things that seem incomprehensible and things that you cannot thrive after. Mm -hmm. So you eventually get to the rooms of AA. How long did it take for you to turn your life around? Um, I mean, you know, I, I blessed that I haven't had any relapses in my, in my story. So when I decided to get sober, I, I have stayed sober and that in and of itself is a miracle. But for me, I think in my situation, it probably took me a good, honestly, just till recently to be fully transformed into who I'm supposed to be mm-hmm. probably about you know, nine, 10, 11 months ago, honestly, if I'm, if I'm being hundred percent honest, I think my first few years of recovery were really rough because I still wasn't being hundred percent honest. Mm-hmm. I still wasn't fully surrendering and I was still trying to control everything, people, places, and things to be in the spots that I wanted and needed them to be so that it would work in my favor. Very selfish behaviors still, which are very anti-program values. Um, that dishonesty, that self-seeking, selfishness behavior. And, you know, I was very, I was still fighting life. I was still fighting life. That makes perfect sense. I I wouldn't expect anything less with what you've shared so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like everything you do, you do with conviction, whether it's drinking or recovering or mothering. Mm-hmm. So let's fast forward to this place in your life. Something that when Jen was describing you, she would light up and she'd say, Kim, you wouldn't believe what people can do and the level of turnaround that they can have that seems impossible. And you were the person she was talking about. So I like to touch mind, body, and soul. I think they're all one. I don't think they're separate. I do believe that we are a soul, a light being who chose a car or meat suit to drive around in this incarnation and that this is not at all who we are. It's just who we chose to represent ourselves as right now. And, but there is an attachment to the body. You know, our soul lives in this body. What other miraculous things have you been able to turn around in your life recently? Yeah. So I, um, finally got to this point of similar to when I got sober the first time of this, like, I can't live life anymore. And I knew if I didn't do something, I would turn to drinking. And for me to drink is to die. So I decided, um, you know, I had gained an exponential amount of weight after pregnancy and had made it up to about 245 pounds. And you know, just bloated. My body was unhealthy and I ended up getting a non-alcoholic fatty liver. Um, and usually you get a fatty liver from, um, like you're drinking, but I got it from the way I was eating and the food I was consuming and how I was consuming it, which was at, you know, I think I found out about two years ago. So at like six years sober was a slap in the face to tell me, you mean I've done all this work. (laughs) No kidding. And my my doctor's like, in a couple of years, if you don't lose some weight, basically, and turn around your eating, you will have cirrhosis. And she was like, if, you know, if you were 40, 50, 60, I wouldn't be as concerned. But because you're so young, 
it, it's very concerning. And so that was kind of what started about two years ago, started this journey of trying multiple diets, trying anything, you know, noon smoothie diets, whatever it was, I tried it to fix the problem. And, and ultimately the problem was me. The food was just a symptom of, of my problem. Absolutely. You know, you hear a lot of transfer of addiction. So mm -hmm. you gave up your coping mechanism in the bottle. Did it become food? Yes. And it's, and it's actually, uh, funny enough, is encouraged in the rooms of AA. Really? You know, even the big book says, have some chocolate, keep it by your bedside. It'll, it'll help you in those moments. It encourages to, you know, have a little sugar, have some sweets. It's not going to hurt you. But for somebody um, who has a food addiction and compulsive food behaviors, that is dangerous territory to start going down. And so I did, I switched my addictions. I switched from, you know, booze to, um, to sugar and carbs and lots of it. Well, when you're pregnant, so you had like a triple whammy, you had an addiction that had nowhere to go. You had a pregnancy, which is a whole different thing. Unless you've been there, there's no reason to talk about it. Like mm -hmm. France, literally aliens come down and take over your body and the hormones are all over the place. And you might as well not be you during that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful and magical, whatever. I know there's women who glow. I sweat. Yeah, so, I was miserable. Not happy, I was miserable. Yeah. And I never talk about this, but I've had many times in my life prior to children where food was a real issue. And the conundrum was you have to have food to live, yet you have to know exactly how to manage your relationship with it. I don't think that, you know, having an addiction with alcohol is easier or worse. I just know that you don't have to have it to live. Mm -hmm. so I'm not presented with it every day, but during my young adolescent years, as a way of coping with all of those unresolved emotions and wrestling with who am I and why do I hate myself? Food, I could control until it controlled me. Absolutely. And there was a point like, this makes no sense to me. I have to have it, yet I can't actually be rational in any way. You know, it has its mm -hmm. own life and own power. Miracle from God, I had children that, that changed things for me. You know, mm -hmm. I had to finally not be in my head and be about them. That's where I'm talking about the mind is small and the soul was big. Mm -hmm. And the school took over and just said, listen, there's a reason these kids are here. It's not an accident. You have to get your shit together. And Absolutely. Yeah. But that is something that people don't understand. Like when there is addictive behavior around food, it is something you're looking at nonstop every single day that you actually have to have. It's like telling someone, monitor how much air you take in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you know what and, I mean? Yeah. And, and, you know, it, like you said, it's, it's food is, you need it to survive. You can't live without food. With alcohol, I took it out, out of sight, out of mind. Honestly, getting sober was probably one of the easiest things I've ever done once I took it out and detoxed my system. But food, you still have to consume. So for me, I have to, I joined a recovery program around food and I have, um, you know, for lack of a better word, I have restrictions on my food now. But with those restrictions and that control piece, I have found freedom to be present in my life, which seems like such a 
just a, a mind fuck because you're yeah. like, how do you control? How do you control and find freedom? Right. Yeah. They don't, yeah. the two don't mesh, but with food, it does because for me, I never had boundaries with food and I was never trained how to properly eat. And it was just fend for myself, honestly, and whatever was easiest. And that was carbs and sugar. It still goes back to you started mothering yourself at eight years old. I can't even fathom. Well, it happened in my life through adoption, but my eight-year-old, he still needs a lot of direction. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he, he knows how smart he is and he knows everything. Thank God he knows everything. Um, but I know that I have to guide him on a lot of stuff and it is that kind of stuff. It's just those simple boundaries that become really monumental later and they become part of your foundation. If you didn't have that and you're just winging it, it makes perfect sense. So what is the number so far, just for the sake of going there, what's the number of pounds that you've released? And I never say lost because Mm -hmm. when you lose something, we typically want to find it. Yes. Okay. So how much? Um, Yeah. So I, um, I've been in food recovery for almost nine months now and I have released 90 pounds of yeah, 90 pounds in nine oh, months. Cow. Wow. Um, and it's, I mean, it's un, unbelievable, the body and how it can, you know, for me, I kind of view it as like, I have this allergy to certain foods. Mm-hmm. I have an allergy of the mind and the body that, you know, my mind fixates on a food once I consume it. Yeah. And then my body craves that once I consume it. Mm-hmm. So it's a cycle that just my mind is catching up with my body. My body's catching up with my mind and so on and so forth. And it's amazing when you, just like with alcohol, I took out the substances and put some kind of ground rules around myself and have my body's just to a healthy body weight, a normal, healthy body weight. How has life changed for you? Yeah. And, you know, for me, the biggest thing is the gift to be present in my life mm-hmm. with my son. And that was my probably even before my health and my health scares around my weight was my my need to be there for my son was my primary motivator. And I, you know, had this moment of clarity where I was like, I'm going to die young and I'm going to leave my son alone. And he's going to go through the same things that I went through. Now they're different circumstances, but they're similar ideas. And I couldn't even imagine doing that to him. So I had a moment of surrender, had that moment of the jig is up. I can't do this anymore. And I took action. I didn't sit around on it. I took action. And that's the greatest gift for me is that I didn't sit and think about it and go, maybe, nah, maybe not. Like I literally took action made the calls, signed up for programs and did it as quickly as possible because I knew my life depended on it. Isn't it interesting when it's just us and we're in our selfish, small world, how much we'll punish ourselves. But then when it comes to those that we love and the people outside of us and the souls that chose us to be their mother, which is very Mm -hmm. intentional, in, in that process, they rescue us and we rescue their future. Mm-hmm. look forward into my experiences were so devastating yet I wouldn't trade them I know that sounds ridiculous and I want them to live a full life I can no longer put them in bubble wrap and protect them all the time but I can give them 
safety nets and those boundaries mm-hmm. that were missing before. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you were called in a really big way, not just because of the addiction you've overcome with alcohol, but this is something that people struggle with their entire life. And to me, it can be more challenging because you can't remove it. Mm-hmm. You can't completely put it away and not out of sight, out of mind. You know, it's yeah. a whole different thing to learn how to navigate and learn how to make peace with. Yeah. And, and that's really what I had to do. I had to take out the foods that were my, my trigger foods, mm-hmm. um, which for me consists of sugar and white flour. And I had to put kind of ground rules around my food. So I weigh and measure my food. Any meal, anything that goes on my plate is weighed and measured. And that, those restrictions have given me the freedom to be fully present in my life and to not be controlled by the food. Mm -hmm. My mind constantly raced. When am I going to eat? How am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? Well, if I go here and I eat here, I can't eat that much because then I'm going to go here and eat. It was plotting, plotting how to get more. Obsessive. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was a complete obsession of the mind. So if you are in a controlled environment with your food, how does your hubby fit into that? Is this difficult for him or has he, you know? I mean, he's, yeah, I I am beyond blessed to have the husband that I have Mm -hmm. because he is 110% supportive of my recovery and understands that my recovery, both my food addiction and my alcohol addiction come first. Because without those recoveries, I, my life would be thrown away. So he is my biggest cheerleader, my number one supporter. And I just like, I just count my blessings every day to have him. But he, you know, he, we just had this conversation today, actually, where he was like, I'm so proud of you. I wish I could be like you, strong like you. Like, and I was like, it's not even about the strength. You know, it's not about, about the willpower. It's about the surrender and the weakness that I have around food. Um, And he, you know, when I came home from a, I went on a five-day retreat to kind of detox from my food addiction and called um, CORE, C-O-R. And I came home and I was like, he had cleared out the cabinets of every single item that I could not have. I I mean, our trash can was full to the brim and trash day was like the day before. Um, And so there was a lot of stuff we got rid of um, because it was all junk. And he weighed and measured his first meal with me, like my first, my first supper at home. And he he is a keeper. Um, And he's, he's my rock. You know, he's my number one cheerleader and fully supports me. I think sometimes he can get, you know, kind of in his own thoughts about his food because of the weight that I've released and the, you know, all the things that I've accomplished through, you know, conquering my food addiction. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes he can see that and, you know, compare himself in certain ways. Sure. And, and so for me, that just means that I have to just continue to show up and support him the way he supports me. Well, he got the shiny, badass, sparkly version of you. How many years have you guys been together? Uh, we in November it'll be um, three years married. Okay. Um, yep. So, and we um, have been together 
four-ish, four plus years, we moved pretty quickly and didn't beat around the bush with our relationship. And knowing we wanted to be together, I always say like the moment I saw him when we went on our first date, I was like, this is it. This is the guy. Like, I was like, I I don't need to look any further. Like, this is it. Yeah. What is your little guy's name? Um, My little guy's name is Lowell. L-O-W-E-L-L. He's probably got a hundred nicknames, but he's named after my dad. Okay. So if you could pinpoint one thing that Lowell has taught you, Mm -hmm. what do you think it would be? Oh, that's a good, that's a tough one, but it's a good one Um, to narrow down to one thing. I think just that unconditional love Uh for, for myself and also for others. And, and view it, he's really taught me to view human beings as they are and each person as an individual and not with judgment, not with preconceived notions of what I think should be or what I know should be, really just having acceptance and unconditional love. That's fantastic. Jameson has taught me to have fun, mm. to get out of my head and get back into like, we're here to have fun and enjoy really silly things. Like I have a disco ball in my home. I've always wanted one in my dining room. I have sparkly for real wheels on my roller skates. I mean, I think I'm reverting back into a child and it's the best thing ever. Yeah. That hair who rolls her eyes at me because this is my go around, you know, I'm here. Mm -hmm. I love your story. You're absolutely, I don't know that you know this, but the smile that you have is like, beaming. Thank you. Thank you. you. Radiate light. And I hope that you take all of that and find a way to help people because Mm -hmm. so many are lost. They really are. And so many are struggling, sad, stuck. We know what it feels like to be there. Yeah. The very people who someday could be living a beautiful life and really happy, you Mm -hmm. know, but, and And I'm a firm believer that nobody is destined to live a miserable life. They're not, but sometimes they need a fucking ladder to get out of that hole. (laughs) Or three or four ladders, honestly, sometimes. Um, But yeah, it is. And and I have to continue to show up in my best light to show people that it is possible. You can go through hell and high water, be in the deepest black hole and completely shift your mindset, your life. Um, the way you show up, the way you think, the way you act, mm-hmm. shift. Major earth-shattering shifts. Yeah, the old you that was looking in the, from the bottom of the hole would not believe that it's possible because it doesn't feel possible there. Mm-hmm. There's not enough light. And that is uh, my calling. I know it's your calling. Mm-hmm. I know it's our friend Jen's calling. I, those are the people that I'm always drawn to is they have horrific stories if that's all we were were our stories if all we were were our experiences and we're all doomed but we can take those learn the lessons that we came here to learn shine and put the ladder in the hole and start digging people out Mm -hmm. so I'm really honored to meet you I think that you're an amazing person with a beautiful story doesn't matter where it started where it's going is going to be incredible and yeah. hope we were able to stay in touch. And yes, absolutely. Yeah. So one little boy, do you think there'll be more kids? 
Yes. It's an apprehensive <laughs> yes, but yes, I think so. I think um, I grew up as an only child and given my childhood, I don't want my son to like miss out on that sibling, you know, not that I'm going to put him through what I went through, but I, you know, I always wanted a sibling growing up. Yeah. Um, so I think given that, um, and, and my husband knows this, I wear the pants and make the decisions. So, um, if I have any say there will be another one, probably not for a couple of years, but, um, yeah. Well, in the meantime, just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for taking time to share with everybody your very personal story, but it is absolutely a beautiful story because of where it's landed and where you're going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Lulu. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.